Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? I hope right here on the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Disclaimer, as always, uh, this podcast is meant for educational purposes only and is not intended as personal medical advice. Although, again, I think there are so many important things that are brought up in these podcasts that hopefully you could discuss them with your provider and get the best treatments available. Today's topic is on new approaches to diagnosing and treating mental health diseases such as depression and anxiety. Um, interestingly, as this is going to be the last podcast broadcast at the end of 2023, it's also a time of year when the holidays come by and this time of year can be depressing for a lot of people, you know, uh, struggling. Um, you know, the field of psychiatry has always been shrouded in mystery uh, among the medical specialties, you know, meaning for decades, there really was a paucity of hard science to explain depression and anxiety. You know, a field that was dominated for decades by Freudian and then Jungian psychotherapy has now moved to a more scientific approach to common, mel common uh, mental health um, maladies. My guest today, Dr. Kyle Lapidus, is an extremely well-respected psychiatrist. And if you look based on his resume, he isn't exactly the type of psychiatrist that I think is going to have you lie on his couch and have you tell them about your childhood. He is among a new breed of psychiatrists looking at new ways to diagnose and treat mental illness. Dr. Lapidus is an assistant professor at Stony Brook University's Renaissance School of Medicine. The rest of his resume is quite impressive from an undergraduate at Harvard to an MD, PhD at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and then later a residency at Mount Sinai Hospital in Psychiatry. His specialty is looking at new treatments for depression, such as ketamine infusions and transcranial magnetic stimulation. So I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk to uh, Dr. Kyle Lapidus. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I'm really glad to be here. And um, I do think it's a timely and important topic. And as you mentioned, <clears throat> with the season, it's definitely um, a time that a lot of people have more uh, mental health concerns. Right. Yeah. They always say these are the jolly holidays, but not exactly. So, Dr. Lapis, what I like to usually ask my guests in the beginning, and as I mentioned, I like to know about their background. And as I mentioned, psychiatry doesn't exactly have the reputation as a hard science. So, and you strike me as a hard science kind of guy. So how did you end up selecting the field of psychiatry to be your specialty? So, yeah, I, I came from as a child wanting to do neurosurgery and also being very interested in um, science and research. And so even when I was in high school, I started to do some research in a lab. Uh, and then when I went to college, I did a lot more research um, and knew that I wanted to pursue an MD PhD largely because I actually wanted to do research. And I thought having the clinical experience would um, help guide my research. Um, so I, I ended up working in several labs. Uh, I did my undergraduate thesis in Stephen Rappert's lab. And uh, while I was in college, I also worked in Eric Kandel's lab. And I worked there for two oh, years after for, I graduated. Yeah. yeah, he's just for our listeners. Uh, Eric Kandel is one of the most famous uh, neuroscientists, psychiatrists um, probably ever was in the country. 
Wow. That's, that's pretty interesting. You know, I think I also saw it in like maybe in your bio, I think, but your mom was a psychologist and your dad was a physicist or something. So that's correct, like an interesting correct. combination. So there had to be some influence. I'm sure your mom was kind of whispering, look at the brain. There's some really <laughs> mysteries there that you need to figure out. Um, I did. I, I did. I had this brain model. Actually, I could show you. I don't know if this is on yeah, video. No, we can the, the video. Yeah, we can see it. <laughs> um, okay, let me, let me see. I can hear I'll bring it uh, Okay. I had this brain here. You'll see. Wow. Whoa, <laughs> I was wow. actually given as a child. I was about to say, did your mom give that to you as like a, you know, like a, a holiday present? A birthday present. present. A, birthday a birthday present. present. Yeah. She was yeah, so. definitely had you on the right track. Well, you know, yeah, exactly. I always tease people. They say like, how did you go into medicine? And I do love medicine. I said, but I was brainwashed at an early age. My mother shows me a picture at three years old. They put a stethoscope around my, uh, my neck. So it was like. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. Uh, Let's get into uh, about understanding depression, which again, most people at some point in their life experience this. So I'd love to hear a little bit of a primer on that. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, depression, unfortunately, is so widespread. You know, it can come on after the death of a parent or a child, a divorce, or even a major disappointment in life or a financial travesty. So I guess what I'd like to get a little bit of understanding from you, does the cause of depression matter? And are the clinical findings similar or different? And a little bit about the brain chemistry. So if you were again gonna to try to explain to someone, you know, comes in and says, gosh, I have a family member that's depressed. Um, you know, Dr. Lapidus, what's going on here? Right. So yeah, I mean, I think the first point that you're making about the frequency of depression and how many people experience this and how much of a burden it is on society in general. This is huge. Uh, depression is the number one sort of cause of disability adjusted life years and just sort of years lost, like work lost, you know, to illness, things like this, or it's, it's really the top illness, um, that we face in, in, in American society. So, it affects, you know, probably, as you mentioned, almost everyone has some level of depression at some point in their life. Right. But in terms of what we think clinically, when we talk about depression, usually we're talking about major depressive disorder. Even that is at least a third of the population. And that's that's even before COVID and during COVID, these, you know, the yeah. frequency of all mental health issues really spiked. Um, so could be could be much more than a third. And this is what's reported. But conservatively, you could say a third of the population will experience a major depressive episode at some point in their life. Uh, so that's that in and of itself is huge. Now, does the cause matter? That's that's an interesting question. Of, of course, yes, the cause matters, especially to the person who's experiencing the depression. Well, because what, I guess what I'm kind of hinting at, and I'm just really, I'll be curious if we are, I mean, it could be the unanswerable question, but it's like, I guess sometimes there are causes of depression that are really irreversible. I mean, if you lose a spouse, can't bring the spouse back. I mean, you may meet another one and that, you know, um, God forbid you lose a child, you can't bring the child back. And I, I've had, unfortunately, friends of ours who have lost, you know, children, you know, uh, before their time, for sure. Um, these are devastating things. And then obviously there's something chemical that goes on, you know, in, in depression, as you're well aware. So, I, I guess that's what, you know, again, it might be, as I said, an unanswerable question, but I was just curious, like, again, when you're seeing patients, you know, again, like how I do in my, in my 
areas of immunology and holistic medicine, I sort of have to compartmentalize, you know, again, I'll just give an example. Like when I see a chronic fatigue patient, I start to compartmentalize. Does it look like it was from an infection? Does it look like it was from something metabolic? You know, again, in this, in a, you know, more conventional medicine, we can do that. I don't know if we could do that in depression because, you know, my next question too, really, which maybe is important as part of this, like, you know, we see depression, unfortunately, so much now even in younger patients. And again, when you're seeing a patient, uh, are you stratifying when you see groups of young people who are depressed versus geriatric patients? You know, I'm trying to, you know, as again, this field, which I know has been so difficult and, and for so long, you know, um, there, again, there seems to be no hard guidelines or, you know, how to treat these patients. So I'm just curious if, you know, again, with a lot of things that you're doing, if even in your, you know, again, stratifying, diagnosing, you know, they, there's a certain approach. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the problems that we face is we don't have very good biomarkers for a lot of mental mental illness. We don't really have great very effective and, and useful, like immediate biomarkers that we can use. And then right. there's a lot of interest in this. And I've been involved with some studies recently, um, working to try and find biomarkers, you know, for at least for treatment response, if nothing else. Right. But so as it stands, you know, yeah, there's sort of some heuristics and, you know, ideas about what may be more effective in one population than another. But generally, we don't have great guidelines for it. We have treatments that are approved. Only recently, we've started to get some other kinds of approvals. So some drugs being approved for treatment-resistant depression, for example, which is considered to be a, perhaps a slightly different kind of beast, although it does seem to be some kind of a spectrum where the more treatments that people have tried and not responded to, the more treatment resistance they have, which is kind of self-fulfilling in some sense. But that means that they're less likely to respond to future treatments. Um there are certain types, though, now that are also getting approval. So postpartum depression, for example, right. now has approved treatments, which it never had before a few years right. ago. Um, there's certain things, maybe sometimes there's a seasonal pattern that, that people may respond to, and that may have some different treatments and different treatment options that are interesting. Um, people who have premenstrual symptoms, there's a premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is a depression that comes, you know, around the right, time hormonal. of hormonal. Yes. Yeah, it's hormonally based. So there, there are certain subtypes that may have specific treatments that are indicated for them. Doesn't necessarily mean that those are the only treatments that can work for that or that those, it certainly doesn't mean that those treatments that are indicated will work for everyone who has it, just as with any treatment, but it uh, can give you some kind of a guideline. Okay, so let me ask you this. Let's say in a day in your practice, and I know you have a busy practice, let's say you have, uh, 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 unfortunately, a 20-year-old that's struggling in college, you know, being, it was first time away from home, maybe got into some, you know, drug issues or whatever it was, and developed severe depression. And later in that day, you see a geriatric patient who's retired, um, you know, a lot of his self-worth has changed or whatever too. Would those two patients potentially be on the same medication? I mean, is there a way, like, I'm just curious, it's like, you know, when you're, when you're assessing, there are a lot of good antidepressants now that, again, to some degree can hopefully help, we believe, you know, improve, um, and, and lift depressions, but that's what I guess I'm trying to figure out like if, yeah. if something's changed, you know, because like, again, sometimes I see patients that are reluctant to see a psychiatrist and I'll put them on an SSRI and I, I use what I'm comfortable with, but I'm no, by no means a super expert, but I just know they're in such distress 
then, yeah. you know, just like, you know, talk therapy alone is not going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think your point is really good. And I did not mention that I neglected to talk about those other. So there are certain, you know, chemical causes, let's say also of depression um, that are kind of well-known and maybe actually classified differently, actually. So for example, you mentioned substance use, right? So people who are abusing or, or even not necessarily abusing, but using certain substances can have a depression that may be related to the use of that substance. And so you may have a different kind of treatment approach for that. There's also certain nutrients that some people may lack um, or, or they may lack processing ability for certain things. So there's certain maybe metabolic factors that can be involved. Uh, and then also just if someone's malnourished in various ways, they may have a depression um, that that sort of would not necessarily respond as well. Or you may be able to treat it with something that you wouldn't use for a depression that someone else might have. Um, as far as like the age, you know, there are certain of the more involved treatments that you might think are going to maybe work better for older people. So one example would be, you know, ECT maybe works particularly well in very in the elderly, right? It does. And has it, it changed, just so we know, too, because people, when they hear that, you know, freak out, they they picture from the old, uh, one of the flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know, Jack Nicholson getting, you know, having marks on his head. And I know, I think things have really evolved. So maybe you could explain a little bit about that, too. So yeah. I, it's funny that this is the first thing I mentioned, because this is, you know, sort of <laughs> on the spectrum of, like, one of the more advanced, like, very right. treatment resistant treatments. And I, I, I do have patients absolutely who I recommend ECT for, and I used to do a lot of it and I think it is a great treatment, but that's not where you would start. Right. Certainly. Right. Of course. Um, and I can talk about some uh, other methods, but yeah, ECT is a lot more modern than uh, people think about it. There's a lot of new methods um, that have been developed and it's done with anesthesia. It's like going in for a procedure. You would go in for like a, like almost like you're going in for a cosmetic procedure actually because it's the same day you don't you go into the or but you're not actually cut at all and you're kind of discharged or you might not even go into the or maybe you go into the um the recovery room and get it depending on how they set it up in the in the um space but you basically leave the same day you're kind of fine so and it's you know all of those other sort of horror stories those are not really true. Do we understand why they? Do we understand why it works? Because I mean, get back in the day. I don't know how anybody even discovered to think about doing that. But you yeah, know, it's almost like it's almost like the discovery of you know the the you know the east you know the shock therapy for you know um, you know for uh, you know, asystole. I'm trying to think of the term. You know, the layman's term. Defibrillation you know, like, when you defibrillate. Yeah, defibrillation, like when you know when somebody's right. heart stops. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. I don't know how anybody ever thought of coming up with this thing. I mean, I guess it's, right. like the heart, it's an electrical organ, essentially, yeah. I guess, as the brain is. But but you do see, I guess, people whose depression lifts after this, that they're just not. This, in... is, this is almost the gold standard for treatment. Really, really. Yeah. But and, again, this is like it has side effects and a lot of people don't want to have it. Well, yeah, well, let me ask questions. So side effects. I mean, but back in the day, people used to be so frightened because supposedly there was like significant memory loss. Is that no longer an yeah, issue? No, or? that's still an issue. There are more modern methods to limit that, but it still yeah, is a concern. That's for a problem. So, okay. But fortunately, we have new treatments that are, you know, we're going yeah, we're we're to get into that. We'll, we'll, we'll keep the, the listeners on an edge. I want to yeah. go back to one of the things you just, you mentioned though, because again, also always fascinating me, you know, the, the issue between addiction and depression, um, you know, it sounds like the you know it's all the old story, the chicken and the egg. Is it that sometimes these people, young people, whatever, too, 
uh, develop the addictions because they're depressed or is the, um, you know, and so they're sort of self-medicating or are they just have an addictive personality and then that they get sucked yeah. into. Yeah. Was it both? Is it one or the other the overall in your experience? Yeah, no, it's, it's actually, that's, that's a really good point as well. Um, obviously depression and substance use and various other kinds of actually addictive sort of compulsive behaviors uh, appear to re- involve the brain's reward circuitry. Often people will talk about dopamine. Obviously that's not the, the whole story here, but for a simplistic version, people talk about that a lot. Um, and there is a connection obviously between reward that re- or lack of reward that la- relates to being depressed and lack of reward that might lead someone to misuse something or misusing something that leads to a lack of reward because you kind of oversaturate a system and it, downregulates basically um so there is definitely a connection and there's there are some statistics that also support this so when we i mentioned major depressive disorder as the sort of clinical diagnosis that we most think of when you think of depression right and the the ratio from males to females of depression is that it's pretty much a two to one ratio of females. Really? Mm. Two thirds of people with major depressive disorder are female. Do they wait? Two thirds are female. Correct. So it's more it's women than t- men. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's much more common in women than men. And why do you, um, is, do you have any reason why they think that is? is there a... Yeah. So that's what I was getting to. So okay. some people have suggested that the reason for this discrepancy is not because and, and absolutely hormonal factors and, and estrogen, progesterone, these kind of factors. And I mentioned we talked about PMDD before. So the menstrual cycle may absolutely have something to do with it. And obviously, there are many biological differences between people who are biologically male and biologically female. That's That goes without saying. But uh, importantly, a lot of people have suggested that because substance use disorders so heavily favor men over women – that there's actually some portion of the population that really has major depressive disorder, but they're not getting diagnosed with it because they have a substance use disorder and that those, that population skews towards men. Mm, Okay. What about also hereditary issues? You know, I mean, obviously I think like, like a lot of illnesses, like depression can run in families, um, addiction can run in families. How significant is that in the sense like, you know, I, and where I bring it up is let's say there's a, a pay, you know, I don't know, someone that a colleague says to you, I, you know, I have, you know, who's an internist, I have this 30 year old, but there's a lot of depression in the family, the mother, the father, you know, whatever. Do, are there things that people can do to protect themselves? You know, has that been looked at? Yeah. I mean, so what prophylactically can you do, right? If you have mm-hmm. a family. So, the first part of that, absolutely, there is there are fam- familial tendencies towards these things, and especially if you get into like bipolar disorder and other things like mm-hmm. that, um, the, the the association goes up even a lot more than even right. for depression. But obviously, the the greater the family load, the greater the risk. That's true, and you know it's hard to say what's all exactly genetic versus some level of you know environment. Obviously, plays a role in all of these things as well. But it's clear that there is a genetic component to this. Um, so what would you recommend? With Is there any type of nutritional things? Would you tell them to do certain activities to, you know, I mean, one of the, my next questions was going to be, you know, like, obviously, we know, too, loneliness is a major factor in the depression. 
And that could be among young people who feel isolated or elderly people who, again, feel isolated. And in general, we're all social creatures. You know, actually, one of my favorite books, though, I don't know if you've ever read this by Susan Cain. It's called Quiet. And uh, it was really interesting. It's about uh, what she talks about the, um, you know, it's, uh, it's basically like the people who are more are comfortable being alone, you know, versus like there are people who are just party people. They love being in groups. Uh, but in general, loneliness, I think, is usually not a good thing, you know, if you're susceptible to depression. So um, I was wondering where that also weighs in. I mean, is that ever part of a treatment where you like will recommend to a person, look, get involved in activities, you know? Yeah. Yeah, just, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Extroversion versus introversion. Right. That's the, that's, that's what that's, I was thinking of. Introvert a, versus extrovert. I couldn't remember the yeah. term. Yeah. Um, so, but absolutely. Those kind of things generally might be referred to as behavioral activation. Uh, this is sort of a part of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that I don't have people lying on the couch, and that that is true. Is it true? I was but guessing. I, I just got the feeling. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I do provide a lot of psychotherapy for my patients as well. well. Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. think that you can really do people justice just by giving a medical treatment without psychotherapy. So mm -hmm. um, often we'll use certain parts. I may not always do a formalized certain method of psychotherapy, although – Obviously, I have experience doing a bunch of different methods, mm -hmm. um, and I often also refer out to other therapists, and we do collaborative care as well um, for my patients. But when I meet with a patient, I always will do some level of, of therapy with them as well anyway. Because that connection, I'm sure, they, you know, they feel absolutely. The safe with you. Absolutely, the connection is important, and often, you know, often sort of suggestions like that, so activational suggestions of like, okay, well, it, it, would, it might be helpful if you, you know go out this weekend. If you make a plan with someone this weekend to meet someone, you know, if you do something like that, these are, these are things that can absolutely be helpful. I wanted to address the other question you mentioned in terms of like genetic things and things that you might, and those, those would be kind of recommendations for anyone with depression, but you're kind of talking prophylactically. Right. And there's a lot of other things that we can recommend behaviorally as prophylaxis yeah. um, or sort of as optimization. Cause I'm, I'm also very interested in that, right? It's mm. not just people who are very ill. I mean, we started off talking with like one of the most intensive treatments that we have, not necessarily the most, but kind of on that. Yeah. We'll side circle back. I think it's important. But, because I, yeah. But, um, but, you know, absolutely. A lot of times what we're looking for is not to get someone out of the deepest, darkest depression ever, but to help someone function better. They're already sure. functioning pretty well. And we're trying to optimize their function so right. that they can perform better at work. You know, maybe they're already in the top of their field, but they want to go beyond that, you know, right. or maybe right. they're, you know, whatever they they're looking to, you know, they have a, a good, healthy relationship, but they have certain things they would like to improve in it. There are various ways that, you know, we're not just looking at fixing a problem necessarily, but sort of like, how do you how do you tune up the whole system and make it function as well as it possibly can? Um, so but in the prophylaxis side, you know, one thing, one genetic um, condition that people have that's di sort of diagnosable um, with a genetic testing um, is a, a deficiency in methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase mm -hmm. um, people may i'll just have to stop you one second for people listening because a lot of my listeners are following holistic medicine you know they it's the mthfr gene so a lot of people come in and say i have the mutation i you know da, da, da. okay go ahead exactly and so for people with this with this gene you 
And if, if your family members have it and they have depression, you, you certainly might want to think about, well, let's at least treat that. It's probably not going to do you any harm to treat it, certainly. And, so and so maybe, you're talking about basically with active B12 and, you know, you're talking about vitamins treatment. Yeah, yeah. And, and L-methylfolate. You gave, right. Yeah, you basically right. gave, Yes, yeah. yeah. There's really, I, I do this with my patients all the time because uh, I see so much uh, gut microbiome dysfunction. And actually, maybe we're going to touch on that, too. It just reminded yeah. me about the gut brain connection yeah. has come up in a lot of the podcasts, you know, and because it's interesting, one of the first things that, that people, you know, I know also when I'm like extra anxious, whatever, too, one of the first things, it's like my alert son, and I didn't know this when I was younger, is my stomach starts to get like these butterflies, right? And I, and I keep on thinking that something's wrong with my stomach, and it's just amazing how your brain diverts your attention from maybe what's really bothering you. But let Absolutely. me ask you this too, because I, 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 I want for the listeners too to really get things. So as far as with diagnosis, um, now I know, you know they've been on TV a lot. He's always on PBS, like the Amen Clinic. They promote like certain kind of brain scans. You know, now we're seeing you know about this genetic testing that maybe helps guide you know the therapies like the SSRI. Is this something that you're using? Are, are you finding any of these things of value at this point? So I don't recommend people for PET scans. You don't. Um, right. Okay. No, I mean well. In I mean, because he, he promotes it a lot, but he's got about 12 clinics. He's got a big yes. thing going there. Yeah. Uh, in, in certain cert, I think the idea of having brain-based biomarkers is great, and I yeah. hope that we can get there. I don't think that the evidence base is sufficient to subject someone to radioactive exposure for it okay. right now. Good, po- good point. In, good unless, point. unless, and I should say unless, there's people, for example, who have Alzheimer's, right? And this is so we were t- we were talking about causes of depression. There's various other things that people right. can have. And, and there's lots of you were talking about sort of elderly people. There are interactions between cognition and depression. And there's something called pseudo dementia where people can actually be depressed and they come off like they have dementia, like if, as if they had Alzheimer's or something. But they actually don't. If you treat their depression, it can get better. Their cognition will improve to the point where they don't look like they're demented. But that said, there are people who actually have Alzheimer's disease. Right. And fortunately, just recently, there's actually a treatment that's come out. Um, an infusion therapy uh, that may soon have an oral version as well, but right now there's for Alzheimer's. Treatment. Yeah, and it, it, it. I mean, I, I don't personally give that treatment, but what's the um, name of it? But you don't mind. Would you, would you remember offhand? No. I, okay, I'll look it it's, up. It's, a, it's an antibody. Um, okay. And uh, this, this is. Um, I, but I, I I know of people who this has worked quite well for, and it's sort of in contrast to a lot of the other. I mean, this has been there's been sort of a push for this. A lot of people have wanted this for a while, but now there's sort of a new approach that seems to be working a little bit better. Even though there's questions about that whole hypothesis and everything else, it seems to be something that that works. You know, that that may work uh, really well for some people. So, um, now what so about I, the genetic? I, I, what about the genetic testing to guide? You know, yeah, is yeah. it is it really not true? Because you know, again, I get things too. People come to me with their stool microbiome, and I and I, and I tell them very honestly because I get this from other practitioners. I said I've checked I've checked with a lot of experts. It's still the wild west. We don't know what this really means, so right. don't, don't get in a panic. But you know, again, it does seem a little bit like eeny, meeny, miny, mo when patients are being you know put on various different SSRIs and they'll bounce around. Do you have any type of I don't know in your own personal experience a protocol the way you assess and say okay this patient would do good on escalpatram this one would do good on you know Wellbutrin just out of curiosity. Yeah. So. First of all, just to address the microbiome, yeah, I think clearly this is going to have a big role in psychiatry, and it does. Um, there's, you know, people have talked about like 
even things like fecal transplants or taking probiotics, things like that, um, which seem to have various effects. You know, I don't know how how conclusive any of the data is on it, but it does seem important. And, and to note, you're mentioning SSRIs, for example, the gut is the main location where serotonin exists in the body more than the brain. Right. 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 And, Key and, point. and a lot of sort of inflammatory factors, cytokines cross the blood brain barrier. And so there's, there's a lot of, you know, it's not that the brain is sort of this protected separate organ from the rest of the body. It's, it is all part of the same system. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's, there are things that can be done there and things, you know, as I mentioned, sort of in optimization and when things are less severe, absolutely dietary change, other things like that. Uh, I mentioned obviously some nutrients, there are certain nutrients that are very important for people to get that can be taken as supplements, but sometimes Mm -hmm. actually having a healthier diet does a lot too. probably the fiber and other things like that can be very important. Um, uh, so, you know, there's, there's always recommendations like that, that we can make even for someone who's not, you know, that would be good for anyone to do, you know, and things like exercise, et cetera. So now to the, to the genetic testing question. So, uh, to be fair, I should give a disclosure here that I have, um, I do consult for a company that's in that space called Tempest. Um, they don't operate in New York where my practice is mainly located. So, um, but, uh, nevertheless, uh, so I believe that there is a lot of potential for this type of testing. Um, I think that the level of understanding that we have right now is mostly metabolic level understanding. I mentioned a few things and there are some other perhaps more insight providing um, tests that can be done looking for different single nucleotide polymorphisms. Um, But a lot of the test results really reflect how does the body manage the drug and how does the body eliminate and okay how does it manage it but do you have a certain kind of protocol i mean there obviously there are several antidepressants now you know from the old ones to the newer ones you know i I, I know seroquels whatever it's hard for me to keep up with some of them because i see them keep on coming out but you know again i don't know when patients are coming to you I mean, I'm sure sometimes maybe you're seeing the more difficult cases, so you're moving things around. Or, but if you see a a new case, do you have, you know, like you say, oh God, this is the safest one. I I would start with a, a 20 year old. I would put them on this for this reason. You know, um, you know. I was just curious. Do you have like any kind of, you know? Your... Yeah. So I mean, I sort of have like maybe some loose flow charts that I have, sort of that exist in my in my head, basically. Right. Right. Um, yeah. But. You know, barring some of the specific diagnostic treatments that I mentioned earlier, right? Um, a lot of it has to do with the individual person. So when I treat someone in my office, I'm treating a person. I'm not right. treating a diagnosis okay. or a condition. I'm treating a person. Okay. And so a lot of it really has to do with what are they experiencing and what are they suffering from. So one complication, for example, if we're talking about depression here, because a lot of what we've been talking about is depression, even though yeah. obviously, you know, but you can make a similar argument for anything else. But depression is pretty easy to make this argument for. So to make the diagnosis of major depressive disorder, there's a bunch of different criteria usually about nine um, per DSM. Uh, that's the manual that we use for diagnosis right. in psychiatry, diagnostic and statistical manual. Um, people don't need to have all nine of those symptoms or symptom sets. They need to have five. And even within those, they can have almost opposing effects. For example, someone can have a greatly increased appetite because they're depressed 
And someone else might be depressed and have a greatly decreased appetite. Right. One person might be depressed and they might sleep all day long. Another person might be depressed and they may not be able to sleep at all. Right. Absolutely. So even th- this is one of the problems with treatment. And fortunately, we have a lot of treatments for depression. And I've only hinted at a couple of them so far, but we have we have a huge arsenal here. And that that's really great. And there's a lot of things that can help a lot of people. And often when people come to me, a lot of patients come who are say, well, I've been treated by 10 doctors and I've tried 40 meds. I've tried everything. There's right. nothing I haven't tried. And I say, no, you haven't. And often people who tell me that, they come into my office and there's at least 10 or 20 treatments that are even approved treatments that they haven't even tried, let alone going more off label. What about IV ketamine? I, it's interesting. You're, we're hearing a lot about that. That I thought it used to be used really for severe pain syndromes. And I'm hearing now it's used for depression. And I think, if correct me if I'm wrong, I, I just remember I was talking to an anesthesiologist once. I think the patients used to have to be in the hospital to have it. But and now I'm hearing there are these clinics, these ketamine clinics where people come in and out the same day. So maybe tell us a little bit where, where does that fit into? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think ketamine is a great treatment. And I was going to mention this before when I started with the ECT, I was saying there are other treatments right. that might be recommended beforehand. So I've done a lot of work to develop ketamine. I did a lot of research uh, even before I was in practice on ketamine. I helped to develop um protocols, or I did a study that showed the efficacy, the first study to show the efficacy of intranasal ketamine intranasal, uh, wow. for depression mm-hmm. with a goal towards sort of increasing access, right? And um, our study actually became the model that Janssen, Johnson & Johnson used uh, in, their, um, in their study that they ultimately got FDA indication for S-ketamine, which is Spravato, is their brand name for that drug. Is that um, IV is that, or is that nasal? Uh, that's intranasal. The approval intranasal. approved as a treatment for depression and as a treatment for suicidality, actually, separately, wow. um, which is interesting because we can talk more about that separately. But um, so IV ketamine is a, is a great treatment and probably has much more evidence than any other form of ketamine, barring the S-ketamine. Now, S-ketamine is sort of one of the... Um, enantiomers of ketamine. So when you make a drug, you have left and right-handed versions of things, and you can't really superimpose them. They don't go over, right? Because they're one's left-handed, one right-hand, but they're the same molecule. And that's what, there's S-ketamine and R-ketamine, and both occur together if you give someone ketamine, racemic ketamine, that's the regular ketamine treatment. And then the Janssen, for patent reasons, basically got the S-ketamine approved. And we can talk more about that separately. So so if a patient was suffering severe depression, did not respond to a whole bunch of medications, you having discussed with them, you said ketamine would work. Would you do IV or would you do the, the nasal or, you know, it really depends? So I usually prefer regular ketamine over... When you say regular, what, is, what does that mean? The, the racemic, racemic ketamine. The mixture well, of the two, yeah. Uh, yeah, I usually prefer the racemic ketamine over the S-ketamine. Uh, and I can talk about why separately, but I do give both. I give S-ketamine to some people too. Um, as far as method, treatment methods, so I use a bunch of different treatment methods, and I think a lot of them are useful. Um, and so I give IV ketamine, I give intra- injections of ketamine, I give intranasal ketamine. Um, I also work with a company that does a lot of treatments with uh, sublingual. It's, it's sort of a complicated method that we've, that's a very useful method that sort of expands access even further, uh, combining with psychotherapy, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. That company is called Journey. Um mm. But I use a variety of different methods, and I'm less concerned with the method, but I definitely prefer the drug 
ketamine over the S-ketamine for, for a variety of reasons. How does, does that like obviously works very different than the SSRIs? Is it a very different mechanism? And do we understand why that it works? Does it, do we have any idea? No, you smile. Um, <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's, it's, you know, again, in psychiatry, when anything works, there are things we understand about sort of how it works. I, I would almost argue to say almost anything scientific, you can tell much more about how than why. I, I agree. No, I would agree with you. There's so many things that I do in my practice that I sort of have theories, but 20 years from yeah. now, who knows? I might be wrong and it worked for the reason I didn't understand. Exactly. But work, but, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, I think when you're treating a patient, the most thing you want is for them More to results. feel better. But, um, but, but to be fair, um, there are some interesting things about the way that ketamine works. And there's some interesting evidence, some data, um, largely from preclinical so studies, scientific studies, um, rather than in people, although there's some evidence in humans as well. Um, but a lot of this, it's kind of hard to look at someone's brain, you know, because we don't have tools. I mean, you mentioned PET scans before, right? And you can do MRIs. There are things you can do. And, and actually, that's what's been done in humans is looking at functional MRIs, fMRIs. Um, but you can't really look, you can't take a slice of someone's brain while they're alive. Right. And so, but, <laughs> but one thing that's been shown in the models of depression is that there's uh, some kind of pruning of dendrites. So on the neurons, the sort of processes that ultimately make the synapses, let's say the connections between different neurons, those get sort of damaged. Okay. And whether that's cause effect a little both, you know, that's another question, but basically there's some damage. Okay. To the sort of synapses and ketamine seems to improve synaptic plasticity. So to make these new synapses form these new dendritic spines form, and they can make new connections between the neurons. And that's been shown to happen after ketamine treatment within 24 hours. And, oh, wow. and that number is important because that's sort of a key time point for an improvement in the depressive symptoms that the person has, right? Mm. So when we treat with ketamine, one of the you know impressive things about this treatment is that it works, right? So the, the efficacy... I mean, so you know it, fairly soon, I mean, after maybe four or five treatments, you know if it's working. It's like You, you can know go, the next day. You can right, know, you know with people with SSRIs, they sometimes tell them, you know, you got to wait three months to see if something's working. Right, right. And, and yeah, time, SSRIs, bad things can happen. Absolutely, absolutely. So yes, so ketamine was sort of the first of a, hopefully a class of new rapidly acting antidepressant treatments. That's one of the things that was most exciting about mm -hmm. its development. Also, the fact that it seems to work when other things like SSRIs don't work for treatment resistance. What's this major side effect uh, that you worry about or are concerned about? Um, probably the thing that I see most as being a problem for people is if people get nauseous. Okay. That's probably what I see most. The most concerning side effect is that it can um, raise heart rate and blood pressure. And if someone were at risk cardiac-wise, they could okay. have some or or Right. vascular wise they could have some kind of event um we monitor usually it doesn't have too much of an effect and it's in, in that regard and it's pretty it's quite a safe treatment i've really never had any major problem the other problem is if someone has sort of the wrong predisposition in terms of maybe psychosis or things like that there's some risk of of kind of triggering a, an event like that the other part is that almost everyone who has this has some kind of an acute experience right an effect on their consciousness from the mm. drug they feel that they've had a drug right right some people find that sort of enlightening and exciting and and fruitful and maybe they gain insight into themselves or other things and mm -hmm. sometimes ketamine assisted psychotherapy can be used to sort of even enhance that right mm. the benefit that part of the benefit um 
But it almost sounds like a psychedelic, you know, when people talk about mushrooms these days and all that. It sounds scary to me, but, right. you know, but there's some of them say they go through this whole crazy thing. Yeah. It almost sounds like LSD, it sounds like, but, but right. so, that they feel better after, you know. Yeah. yeah. So ketamine is not formally and officially a psychedelic, but it's sort of considered in that class, let's say, in some way. Okay. Um, uh, in that people have this experience, which they can gain insight from. But yes, absolutely. The point is that it can be scary for some people. And this is part of the reason that it's good to have it done in a certain environment and setting. Right, and, sure. and perhaps in the context of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy can very be very useful there. Um, you know, or just having the right setting is very, is very, very important so that people don't get scared. But that's the other sort of side effect is someone could have a bad experience with it emotionally and not, not in, you know, really find the experience to be very painful or traumatic in certain ways. Um, I also think that it helps sometimes people to access certain memories. So one of the other areas of interest is for sort of post-traumatic stress disorder. Or I, I wanted to get to that. Well, actually, we'll, we'll hold off on that one second. No. No, I want to just turn one second also too. Sometimes I get patients, you may also, who are like, they're depressed, they're obviously struggling, and they're like, I don't do medications. I don't do well with medications, and I don't want anything natural. And when I've, over the years, you know, getting some of the, I, I do a lot of functional medicine in my practice, you know, um, so I, I've done personally, I've done meditation and it's, there's good and bad about it. You know, I know, I know there's some people who do hypnosis, like probably, you know, David Spiegel from, I uh, think he's at Stanford. He's, he's big on hypnosis for a lot of things. And some people do music therapy. And in fact, also, I'll never forget reading once, I think it was the New York Times Magazine. There was a woman who I think lost, her, you know, one of her, her children died and she went to a severe depression and they showed in the, the article, she was in, she was, she was out here on Long Island and she was in the ocean in the winter saying the cold therapy was the only thing that sort of helped her function. Right. So, you know, a lot of these things seem a little strange probably to some people, but have you had any experience with any people trying this thing? I'm, you know, like a, a really interesting case where someone said, I'm good. They did this and it helped them, you know, almost like the, uh, was it like the Robin Williams movie, <laughs> like awakening, like, you know, they, all these people have these neurological problems and they listen to music and all of a sudden, you know, they're doing better. So you're talking about, yeah, people having some kind of unusual treatment that does something for them. Very Absolutely. natural, but yeah, right, natural, that non-medication. Yeah. Yeah, have yeah. you ever seen a case like that where someone said, I, I kind of beat depression by doing hypnosis or, well, actually, you know, it's really funny, I, I was listening to a podcast once, there was this really interesting guy, he, he had you know, very, a huge, uh, he ended up being very successful, but he talked about, this, this is interesting, because people's stories are interesting, he was in his early 30s, and uh, his wife left him, you know, they, he, you know, he was his high school sweetheart or whatever, you know, and he was building up his businesses. And all of a sudden she's like, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And he went into a terrible depression. I mean, you know, and I mean, the guy's like 85, 90 now. He's like amazing. And he said he just struggled and he struggled. And then one day someone told him about, you know, I have the book here somewhere, told him about hypnosis as a way to help for depression and he went all in, he learned it, he, he took the courses, whatever too. And he said, personally, it changed his life. You know, right. I, I'm sure he's a therapist also, but so anyway, I'm, you know, I'm going on and on, but I was just curious if, if you've ever seen in all of your training and any of your stories, any of your meetings where people said, you know what, or even in conjunction with any of these treatments, doing these things, like for example, music therapy. I, I know when I'm feeling down or whatever too, I almost like don't want to listen to music, but yet right. if I push right. myself and I exercise a little bit and I listen to music, it lifts me up. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's the tricky thing is a lot of times it's hard for people to do these things, but there are a lot of behavioral changes that people do. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and I've seen work, you know, you mentioned the cold baths, like Wim Hof kind of method. There's, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> sleep deprivation is a, is a like oh, kind of well-documented thing that can improve depressive symptoms. Really? Oh gosh. You, the problem is the often it, yeah, no. Uh-huh. Oh, well, if it's cry, it sort of depends like acutely, really? like a full sleep deprivation, but there's, yeah, okay. there's different ways it can be done. But yeah, I mean, people make various changes in their life and get better. And I've seen that exercise, like certainly I've seen that. So yeah, there's lots of ways. I mean, I, I am going to have to go soon. I just sure. should mention, you know, especially since we started off with the sort of most extreme of brain stimulation methods, neuromodulation methods, um, there are non-invasive brain stimulation methods that I've been deeply involved with and done research on, um, including uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, mm-hmm. TMS, and deep TMS, uh, as well as um, I've done work with um, the Fisher-Wallace, um, which is an alternating current stimulation device. Uh, And I've done other works with direct current stimulation devices in the past. So, you know, there's a lot of other non-medication approaches that are also sort of, you know, somewhat medical in that sense, but are non-medication. And people who don't like medications or don't want to have side effects or whatever may find some of these to be appealing. Also, as mentioned, obviously, the ketamine, people don't have to take it every day. So there's some advantages to that. Mm, Um, I would love... I would love to talk with you more. We may have to do a part two. So yeah, I'm going to wrap up here for us. Uh, Dr. Lapidus, thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to give you a handoff. Is there any way where people can follow your work or find out about your practice? So I I don't use social media because when I, when I trained, that was sort of not recommended for psychiatrists. I do have a website, affectivecare.com with an A for the mood, affective care. Um, And then yeah, various other, I, I do work with journey. I'm the medical director, journey clinical. Okay. Uh, as well. All right. Yeah. We'll definitely have to you know, follow up on this. This was terrific. I think hopefully the listeners got a lot of information and there's a lot of hope. And I hope everybody does have a good holiday season and gets through into 2024. Mm-hmm.